Imagine you have a friend named Todd. Todd is a bit odd. Todd has the incredible ability to sleep in the most inopportune times. People have openly questioned whether he has a physical condition like narcolepsy. But no, the doctors have checked him out and say he's perfectly fine. And yet, Todd still has the weird tendency to sleep when he should be awake. It's caused him a lot of problems at work. Every morning at 7 a.m., you see Todd sprinting out to his car, late for work again, wearing his embarrassingly childish Snoopy pajamas and Batman slippers. His boss is pretty tolerant, but he drew a line when he found Todd curled up under his desk with a Snuggie and a teddy bear. Todd's weird talent to sleep in the daytime has also caused a few run-ins with the police. He's been given a fair number of tickets for sleeping at stoplights. Again, it's not just that he felt drowsy and simply fell asleep. No, no, when they found him, he was reclined back in his driver's seat listening to a sleep track playing on Spotify. Todd's strange talent has also made for quite the embarrassing scene at his kids' ball games. His son might have just smashed a line drive. Everybody's going crazy. The game is won. His son is about to be handed the trophy. And yet there's Todd smiling and snoozing in the sleeping bag on the bleachers. And you better believe it caused problems when Todd took his wife out to a five-star restaurant for their anniversary. And he ordered a nightcap and a pillow and was asleep before the appetizers hit the table. What's so wrong about Todd sleeping? Well, nothing. Nothing's wrong with him sleeping, right? Nobody has a problem that Todd likes to sleep. Nobody really cares that he wears Snoopy PJs and Batman slippers. No one even has a problem with the fact that Todd likes to sleep in his car. The real problem is that Todd sleeps when he should be awake. It's the oddity of a man wearing PJs when he should be wearing a dress shirt or the absurdity of seeing a man curled up in a sleeping bag on the bleachers when his son is smashing line drives that has everyone scratching their heads. Now, you might think that's goofy, right? Nobody's ever seen that. But I think as goofy as Todd may seem, the same strange behavior is found among Christians. As we will see from Romans 13, the day of Christ has already dawned. The day has already come. It's not fully here, but it's already dawned and the light's coming over the horizon. It's time to get up and get dressed for the day ahead. And yet there are Christians who are still nodding off in the daytime, wearing PJs instead of their daytime attire, sleeping in places where they should be awake. Now in Paul's logic, if the gospel has truly impacted our lives the way it should, then we will participate in daytime activities. The gospel is a daytime thing. It's the morning, it's the dawn that has broken into the darkness. And therefore, if the, if the gospel has had the impact that it should, we will be busy doing daytime activities, wearing daytime attire like loving each other. That's the most simple application of a life that's been impacted with the gospel is love. And why must we love others? Well, we love others because of two reasons. Number one, it's the only way to fulfill the law of God. And number two, because it's daytime. So dress like it's daytime. Live like it's daytime. Love is a daytime activity that serves as the only sufficient proof that we are awake. If we do not love, then the only indication is 
that we are still in the sleep of sin, in the sleep of darkness. Things like division, immorality, selfishness belong to the night. Those are the nighttime PJs that we are called to put off spiritually. And to get dressed with things like love and unity and hope and peace and uh, having, having a desire to bear one another's burdens with each other. That is how we live as children of the day. So in Romans 13, Paul calls us to be who we are, children of the day who refuse to nod off into sin now that we have been awakened by the gospel. Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, Paul's command implies that we are to live as if we owe a debt to everyone. If you've ever lived with a debt, then you know that there's an obligation to pay it. Those of you that have student loans know that for the most part, every month you have to section off a piece of your budget to send it off to somebody else. If you've been in medical debt, you have to section off a piece of your budget and send it off. Typically, it doesn't always happen, right? But typically, when you live in debt, you are obligated to pay it. No matter how much money you make, no matter wherever you are, you could move to Alaska, though your student debt belongs in Texas, and in Alaska, you still have to pay the loan. No matter how good or bad life situations are, you can be the general manager of a McDonald's or a CEO of a big company. It doesn't matter. You are still required to pay a debt. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what status you have, doesn't matter how good or bad your life is. Similarly, Paul says that we should be indebted to others, not in money, but in love. In the same way we're expected to pay our financial debts, God also expects us to pay the love we owe others. Wait a second, I owe no one nothing. I don't owe anyone anything. What do you mean to say that I owe someone love? Well, this is what Paul's telling us here, that we are truly in debt, that you have an obligation, that you are indebted to other people. When did you enter this debt? Well, typically, like all other loans or debts, you sign up for it, right? It's a contractual agreement that you enter into between the lender and the borrower. You set the interest rate. You talk about how much you're going to pay each month. So when did we ever agree to be in a debt of love towards other people? Well, the moment you said yes to Jesus, the moment you believed in Christ was the moment you stepped into debt to love other people. Just think about what Jesus says to his disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. There's the debt. If you've been loved by Jesus, you're in a great unpayable debt to love others in the same way. Jesus' words, you also are to love one another, describe an obligation. This is what you're supposed to do. It's just natural. You are in debt. You owe love to everyone else around you. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter whether you agree with them or not. Doesn't matter if you like them. Doesn't matter if they dress the way that you dress. Doesn't matter if they make the choices you would make. You owe every single man, woman, and child on this planet a debt of love. The same kind of love that you've been given from Christ. 
Christ has loved us with a great love. It's that same kind of love that we're to give to others. And that Christ goes on to say, if you don't give it to others, you're in a grave danger. Just think about Jesus' parable in Matthew 18. Jesus warns us against failing to show love and grace to others. Now, some of us, we tend to be okay with Jesus and me. As long as Jesus and I are okay, even if I treat other people poorly, it'll work out for me in the end because Jesus is a God of grace. He'll overlook my tendency to rip into and to hate and to be jealous of and to be envious of and in competition with other people. Matthew 13 doesn't seem to teach that though. Matthew 13 shows that if you've been given grace, you are indebted to show grace to others. And if you don't show grace to others, then you never really receive that grace in the first place. You are indebted to show the grace that you've been given to others. When the first servant who owed the king 10,000 talents was forgiven of his monetary debt, he unknowingly entered into another debt, a debt of grace. And yet by failing to forgive the lesser servant who, who owed him a less amount of money and to show grace to that servant who owed him much, much less. I mean, we're talking about a day's wage versus a lifetime payment. He was forgiven a lifetime payment, but he refused to give grace on the day's wage. What was the result of that? Well, the king condemned him saying, you wicked servant. And here's where we see the debt. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Why is the servant in trouble there? Because he didn't pay his debt. He was forgiven the debt of sin, the wrongdoing. He was forgiven the 10,000 talents paid off. But the problem was he didn't recognize that when he had his debt forgiven, he entered into a new debt of grace. Because he had grace given on his debt, he's to show grace on others' debt in the same manner. Because he didn't do that, he proved himself to still be in debt to the king. By not giving mercy, the servant failed to pay his true debt. Now, the grace we've been given by Jesus Christ should motivate us to give grace to others. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you hear that? While we were still undebted, while we were still vermin, spiritual vermin who were sinners and, and, and doing atrocities in the face of God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He displayed his love for us by dying for us. In a similar way, can we not love people who are far from perfect? Can we not love spouses and show grace to spouses who are far from perfect or church members who disagree with us or neighbors who do weird things? The idea is that we would show the grace that we've been given and fulfill the debt. So my friends, you are indebted, not just to a few people, to everyone. In the eyes of God, you're a debtor and you can never pay off that debt. So pay up. Pay up the love that's owed to others. Think of the greatness of the grace that God has given you 
displayed on the cross, nailing the record of debt against you, canceling it in the death of Christ. Think of the great blessings that have come, the promises and the foretaste that have come through the resurrection of Jesus, showing that you're not just gonna pop up out of the ground again. You're gonna live in the blessing and presence of God, eating food from his table, living in his kingdom without ever being afraid of being interrupted by death again. That kind of great grace and mercy and gospel richness, yeah, you're in debt. There's no amount of ability to pay off that kind of debt. You were an amazing sinner in front of the Lord, and in his mercy, he forgave. What debt then that anybody else owes you or what, what atrocity that anyone else commits you could ever compare to that? We are all debtors. We owe the people around us love. Why? Because their king and creator loved us even when we didn't deserve it. Now, why should we pay up when it comes to the love we love others? Paul gives two reasons and we're gonna get to this first reason. Paul answers, Number one, because the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You might be confused why Paul brings back up the law at this point. Didn't he just say that we're not justified by works of the law, but by faith? Why then is he bringing it back up? Why is he bringing the law back to the forefront? Well, just remember what he's argued here in Romans. While it is true that Paul has said that justification doesn't come by obeying the law, he never said that the law is not important. He never said that we shouldn't do the law. He simply said that we can't be saved by doing the law. However, now that we've been saved, we can and should obey the law of God. Our justification has given us the freedom of obedience. I've said it before like this. We don't obey so that we can be saved. We obey because we have been saved. It doesn't free us up into lawlessness or sin, antinomianism. It enters us into an obligation now and a freedom to actually obey. We can actually do what the Lord says because he has freed us from sin and allowed us to do righteousness. It's it's sort of like a car without an engine. By ourselves, we're a car without an engine. We're not gonna go anywhere. Well, the gospel and the spirit of God has placed a new engine right in the center of this car. So now we are able to go where God wants us to go. We are able now to obey So having been justified by faith, we are now called to pay up our debt of love for others because it fulfills the law. Paul explains, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And most of you know the 10 commandments here. These are them. You shall not commit adultery, or these are a few of them. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And then he gives a blanket. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, he starts to list off these 10 commandments, and he just kind of gives this blanket. If you want to obey all of that, then love your neighbor as yourself. Doesn't it sound like what Jesus said? See, this lawyer approached Jesus, and he said, which of, which of the laws is the greatest? And Jesus summed them up, right? Those first four is loving God. The last six is loving others. So you want to obey the law, you do those two things. You love God with all your body, soul, and mind, 
And then you love others as yourself. So you want to obey the law, you do that. And then Jesus said, on these two commandments, loving God and loving others, depend all the law and the prophets. So why should you not cheat on your spouse? Because to do so would be unloving. Right? To commit adultery on my wife, wouldn't that, by definition, be not loving her? Why should I not kill someone? Because killing's not loving, is it? Why shouldn't I steal their stuff, gossip about them, malign them behind their backs, divide from them, cause all sorts of problems, create some kind of arrogant standard that I'm constantly judging them on? Why shouldn't I do any of that? Because none of those things are loving. Loving does no harm, does no ill thing to another person. So when we love others, we obey God. Love is the root, and these individual acts of not committing adultery, of loving our wives and and husbands well, of loving our children well, of not being greedy and envious and covetous and all these different things that we typically do. When we obey God and we love God as we should, and when we love others, then we will not do the things that the law has required us not to do. Do you want to live as as the will of God requires? Well then, love those around you. That's Paul's simple logic. You want to obey God? Fine. Love others. You don't love others, you cannot obey God. Those two things come together. Now, Paul gives a second reason for why loving others is important. It's highlighted by the phrase, besides this, right? He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Now, in the New Testament, the phrases like the hour or metaphors like waking up from sleep have an eschatological ring to them. What that means is it's kind of this end time talk, you know, when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom on earth. So the hour or waking up from sleep is is a new kingdom reality where a new age has dawned. The old age of darkness and the time of sleeping is quickly passing away because Jesus died and rose again, bringing a new day. And that new day has dawned, and soon it will become fully day, which is what Paul means when he says the day is at hand. Now, it corresponds with the Old Testament's description of the day of the Lord, in which sin is judged and righteousness is rewarded when the Lord returns and all men stand before him. So regardless of wherever your heart is, on the day of the Lord, the Lord sees all. He sifts through all the the motivations and the bone and the marrow of your decisions and your attitude toward other people. Convinced as you might be that you don't have this problem, at the end of the day, when the Lord finally comes, you stand before him and your motivations are sifted through by him, not by men. So the day of the Lord's at hand and it's coming. It's already dawned and soon it's gonna be fully day. So then live like people who are awake. Live like people who are living in daytime. Romans 13 is a warning against becoming spiritually and morally drowsy people. Because of sin, it's easy for us to drift into some kind of type of spiritual stupor where we just kind of let things slide. We let our own heart motivations or our attitudes toward others or the way we speak about others when they're not around or the way we feel about them, the private conversations, imaginary conversations we have in our heads about with them or towards them or whatever. We tend to let those things slide 
And we are living in that kind of spiritual stupor at that moment where we're sleepy. Now, by way of analogy, on the highway, what's one of the most dangerous things for, uh, that a person can find? Well, a sleepy driver, right? Driver not paying attention. The hum of the engine, the comfortable seat. Man, I've got a comfortable car that you can soften or make it firm. I mean, it's kind of nice. You can adjust the AC to just be perfectly comfortable. It's a little cold outside, you can make it warm. A little hot outside, you can make it a little cold. It's, it's awesome. Just your own personal air conditioning system right there. But then you get the long work of this exhausting driving, just kind of the mundane of sitting there and steering. And before you know it, that drowsiness kind of creeps up on you, doesn't it? How many of you have ever been on a long road trip that you had to drive through the night? Yeah. It's one of those moments where you're sitting there just kind of looking like this, right? I've been on one of those long road trips, and I can tell you from experience that sometimes it feels like everything is working against you. The headlights coming in the different direction cause you to squint, but then they close those eyes, right? You're cold, but you can't turn on the heater because if you do, it'll feel like a warm blanket, right? You can't, you got to even be careful what music you listen to because before you know it, you start to drift away. There have been moments I've been driving up to Yellowstone. It was 30 degrees outside and in the car, it was 25 degrees, windows down, AC cranked, music blaring, and a 20 ounce coffee in the hand with me and bloodshot eyes trying to stay awake. Not smart. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not here for you to critique my driving. I'm here to be honest. It's a difficult struggle, isn't it? And at that moment, I really have two choices. Either fight to stay awake, and somebody might say, well, pull over and take a nap, but fight to stay awake or wreck, right? I mean, those are really my, either pay attention and drive or wreck. Those are the two options that I have at that moment. Now, when it comes to the Christian life, I think we need to realize that our biggest struggle is to stay awake to live in this awareness and clear-mindedness, that we do not wreck ourselves or those around us. You see, we get so drifted away into self-centeredness, immorality. We get that tantalizing music that kind of lulls us to sleep, the hum and, the, and even the bumps on the road that kind of cradle us and rock us to sleep. We, we turn on the TV and the Fox News and, and CNN and we get on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and we have our conversations and our gossip sessions and every moment around us, we're being lulled into sleepiness, drowsiness. Conversations with other people where we just kind of allow the negativity towards someone else. Again, lulling us into a drowsiness. Now, the first advent, according to Paul was the alarm clock telling you that it's time to wake up. Day has come. But there's still Christians hitting the snooze button as if day's not already shining. It's time to get up, get dressed, don't hit snooze again. It's time for you to wake up. The night has already passed and day is already shining. And now it's time for you to not give yourself over to that kind of sleepy drowsiness anymore. Things like divisions and sins and temptations and pornography and things like that. Not to give yourself up. That's nighttime activity. Now, it's daytime. It's time to sleep. There's time to wake up. And now's the time to wake up. And according to Paul, it's time to cast off the works of darkness. 
and put on the armor of light. When it's night, when it was night, it was totally understandable that you wore the pajamas of sin, right? I don't, when somebody's living in the darkness, it doesn't surprise me that they sin. What do sinners do? They sin. What surprises us, how it, what should surprise us, is when we send people who've been saved and delivered from sin still walking around in sinful PJs doing nighttime activities like napping at, spot, at stoplights. That should surprise us when people are doing nighttime activities when Christ has brought the day. Just as it would be weird for you to come to work and see your coworker donning on his striped PJs, it's just as strange for Christians being drifted away into political idolatry, division, immorality, gossip, cultural appeasement, and all kinds of other things. That's weird. That, that's the PJs of the nighttime. Daytime requires a different kind of attire. Daytime requires a different kind of activity. Things like hatred, gossip, division, immorality, pornography, all that you did when it was midnight. But the daytime that Christ is bringing requires you to dress up in a different way. Requires you to get up out of bed, to not be this drowsy like zombie that's just walking the earth, but to actually be awake and to be taking off the nighttime clothes of the works of darkness and to be putting on the daytime clothes of righteousness. Paul calls for us to put on the armor of light, which parallels what he says in 1 Thessalonians 5. There he calls us children of light, children of the day. And because this is true, we are not of the night or of the darkness and people should live as people who are awake. He adds, since we belong to the day, this is, I mean, this is almost a word-for-word word, uh, parallel of what he says here in Romans 13. Since then we belong today, let us be sober, having put on bre- the bless- breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. We wear the armor of light. Why? Because we're children of day. We've taken off the PJs of sin. We're, we're not donning the... Batman slippers of unrighteousness anymore, right? But we're wearing the armor of light. We're dressing up according to what's appropriate for the daytime. It's no easy task. Even the fact that he calls it armor, not just clothing, armor being an instrument of warfare insinuates this is gonna be a really difficult thing to do. We live in a very difficult age. We live in a now and not yet period in which the dawn has come and yet it's still not quite fully day. The, the sun's not shining like it will at noon, right? It's just kind of that golden uh, amber light at the, on the horizon. And so we're still living, we're called to live in daytime living while it's still somewhat dark outside. My friends, you're in the fight for your life. This is the fight of your life to, to try to wear the armor of day to wear the armor of light, to not dress up at night. My friends, can I tell you, and I've said it again and again, I'll say it to the last day that I'm your pastor. You are not in a fight against political oppressors, governments, political adversaries. You're not in a fight with your neighbor. You're not in a fight with a local cash register. You're not in a fight with your waitress. Your biggest war that is the greatest danger and risk to you at this moment is your own sin. 
We said it time and time again. The church has survived tyrants, kings, autocratic governments, angry neighbors who come to burn people alive like they do in India. The church has survived all of that. We can't be taken down by those things. We can be taken down by our own self-destructive tendency and sin. And it creeps up like that. We're so blind to the ways that we bring it, the way that, like, would I really know when I'm being envious of somebody else? Should I really trust myself in, in diagnosing whether I'm living in envy, jealousy, division, quarreling, drunkenness, whatever? I mean, most of the alcoholics I know would say, well, I don't have a problem with drinking. I don't think we should trust ourselves to diagnose ourselves in those things. I think what we need to do is live in an awareness that I am the greatest danger to the health of this church. I am the greatest danger to the health of my family. I am the greatest danger to the health of my marriage. Why? Because I am a sinner and there's residual darkness on the inside. So what do I do? I don the armor of light and I go to war. Not with my president, not with my senators or governor, not with my neighbors. I go to war against my own anger. I go to war against my own tendency to be driven by lust. I go to war against my division and suspicion about brothers when I try to figure out what their motivations are and when I get into this jealous competition with them. I go to war with that because that's destructive. Anything on the outside is not. The greatest fight of your life are these things. Things involving sex, orgies, sexual morality, sensuality. Things involving relationship with others, uh, drunkenness, quarreling, jealousy. You want to know what your greatest enemies are? Well, the fact that we can so easily divide from one another, that is a true tyrant divisiveness, fighting, backbiting, gossiping, hatred, division, and, and suspicion, all these things. Those are the things that can kill a church like that. Church will survive no matter who's in the White House, no matter who's in the power of government. It will survive because Jesus said it would. One thing that we cannot survive is our own sin if we don't repent of it. It will destroy us quicker than you know it. My friends, we're called the daytime activities. Sexual immorality is inappropriate. Why? Because it's not loving others. It's making people in the products. Why is pornography so bad? Well, because it's not loving. It's, it's seeing other people who've been made in the image of God as a sexual product meant for my own carnal gratification. Why is disputing with my wife with such anger wrong? Well, because it's not loving to her. That was all nighttime activity. Now I live in the day, so how do I live? In sacrifice for my wife. My friends, at the end of the day, brass tacks, you're gonna have to find out when you stand before the Lord, whether you're living according to the day or according to night. We get into some bad problems when we think of ourselves as too high than we should, too much of what we are, when we think more about what I want, what I think, what I want to be right, what I, my way of doing things, when that thing, when that pops into, into the main center focus, 
when we can't live in unity and in harmony around the gospel, when we can't prioritize, doesn't mean we have to all agree, right? You know that you're doing this well when you can disagree and yet still agree in the gospel. We can say, I don't like the way that you suggested we do this. Now, at the end of the day, both of you still love each other and love Jesus. The problem is, is those divisions become so highlighted that we focus more on the darkness, more on the night, then we realize that, hey, dawn's already come. It's, a, it's daytime. How amazing is that? Just the good news of hearing that you're already living in the daytime. If we're Christians, we're now and not yet people, which means we celebrate the fact that the, the righteousness and the age of, of salvation has already dawned. The sun's coming up. It's not as bad as you think it is. Our king's on the throne. He reigns. What can stop the sun once it, it begins its ascent? Nothing. The sun comes up. Night can't stop it. What kinds of darkness can effectively push back against light? Well, nothing. The light wins. Daytime wins, and we as God's people need to start thinking of ourselves as children of day, dressing like it's daytime, which means love for our spouse, love for others, love for our neighbors, love for our political rivals, love for everyone else around us, loving them in a way that models the Christ-like sacrifice and to wake up from our sleep. And in case he's left anything else, he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. No provision for the flesh. What's the flesh? Well, the things that you tend to want. The things that you tend to think are right. That's, if, if it's coming from you, it's probably flesh. To give no provision for the flesh, to gratify its desires, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're left asking, what hope do we have in living this way? We have fallen to sin so much, haven't we? It's, it's come in, in, in lots of different corners of our lives. So what hope do we have? Well, when we were in darkness, we were absolutely helpless. When we were in night, we had to be nighttime people. We had no choice. We were enslaved to the darkness. We were, enslaved, we were slaves to the night. But Paul gives us the good news in Colossians 1 that the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, which is the kingdom of light. We now stand a hope. We don't have to do nighttime activities. As much as we want to divide, we don't have to placate to that anymore. As much as we want to fight and quarrel, we don't have to do that anymore. Why? Because Jesus died and set you free from that. Because he rose again and he gives you a foretaste and a glimpse of all that's coming. You don't have to choose nighttime activities. You can live in the day. And what's even better than all that, he's given you his spirit to empower you to do that. If only you would listen to him. That spirit's like that beam of light, just kind of showing you which way to go. Leading you to the outside where it's perfectly day. Since we've been transferred into the kingdom of light, since Jesus has died, spilt his blood and broken his body, so that that transfer can be initiated. And since he accomplished it in his glorious resurrection, which is the signal that we have that the dawn has dawned, 
Let us then be people who live as children of the day, putting off the old nighttime PJs of sin and dressing up for the work of the day. So Christians, I just want to invite you to be children of the day, not children of the night. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that if anyone here is sleepy in their sin, if anyone is drowsy um, in their own worldly desires, Father, that you will wake them up with the gospel. The day has dawned. It's time to get up and to get dressed and to live as children of the day. So Father, I pray that you will be with us as we seek to obey you and worship you and to do the things that children of day do. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.